Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Go to Eleven. Once again, we have Great Dutcher in the house. Yes, it's good to be here, or as the young people said in 1991, in the his house. And I'm bringing it back. That's right. It, it is time to update your vocabulary. Though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Going to raise the roof. Did they ever say the Rizoof? I don't know. Maybe we can coin that one yeah. and start it. Yeah. Uh, and we also have Dave Shive. Dave, Dave, say hi to everyone out there. Hello, everyone. It's good to be in what we would call in the 1950s the House of the Lord. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I should take off my ball cap. Or something. Oh, I'm not wearing one, so we're good. So um, first things first, we uh, do have a couple of announcements. Um, those of you who uh, were uh, joining us last week and got in touch with us about the uh, books we were giving away, we will be uh, sending those out tonight. Um, so you should be getting those uh, within the week. Um, and then second, uh, for those of you who are here in Baltimore, we just want to let you know that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff going on down in the city with rioting. Please um, just keep everyone in prayer. We're not actually going to uh, do anything right now in terms of podcasts or mentioning um, any more with that. Um, other than just be praying for it in the future, once we see some resolution and distance and some hindsight, we will uh, address that, correct, uh, Greg? That's right, yeah. The whole Freddie Gray uh, situation, which is a tragic situation. I mean, right now, I, I think all of us would say we're sort of reserving judgment, hopefully, until yeah. uh, proper investigation is done. How did this man die? Uh, what led up to his death? And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of information coming out on that. And uh, at the right time, we'll, I think, talk about that when we have a little more uh, info. Yeah. Um, but tonight we are going to be uh, discussing two topics. The first one is going to be slavery, and then the second one is going to be angels. And hopefully we'll be able to find a nice way to transition and segue that. Um, I don't know how we're going to do that yet. So. Oh, they go together like peanut butter <laughs> and jelly. I mean, when I think slavery, I think angels. Yeah, right. and you do day. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, we are going to start that off. Um, Greg, uh, just real quick, why don't you go ahead and recap the sermon for us? Um, because this is, this is what we're going to be, um, basing all of this off and then we'll lead the discussion. Um, I know there are some things that we want to discuss, especially with England and how they dealt with it and, yeah. and, and, and so forth. So why don't you just go ahead and recap the sermon for those who, um, weren't there and didn't hear it. Sure. Yeah. Preached on first Peter two eighteen through 21 this past Sunday. It was really the second segment in a, a larger topic Peter is dealing with, the subject of submission. You know, I, I called last week's message the submission strategy because I really believe it's a divine strategy that is rather counterintuitive. Uh, when I'm wronged, uh, if the government or people in civil authority or people in any authority over me mistreat me, which has probably happened to all of us at some point or another, my instinct is to fight back. My instinct is to go the Norma Ray route, the Aaron Brockovich route, stand up for my rights. Yeah, uh, and that's very popular. Obviously, celebrated here in the U.S. as sort of foundational to our fabric of uh, identity, etc. That Peter seems to be telling us: No, God has a strategy in being good citizens, in being submissive to the powers over us, even when they are unjust. Uh, that topic is hard in general for those reasons that I said that they're, again, counterintuitive to the way we often think. This week was hard because we deal with the subject, as Peter says, slaves, be submissive to your masters. So immediately all sorts of images get conjured up in my mind, at least, and I tried to be honest with that on Sunday. Uh, what was slavery in the antebellum South here in our own country's history? Uh, I almost can't help. You know, I've seen those movies like Glory and... The, these other movies that give us just a small taste of what 
that time in our country's history must have been like. And I sort of import those into Peter's text. So one of the things I dealt with this week is, was slavery in the first century different than the pre-Civil War slavery in our own country's history? Which, watch how I do this, Nathan. So, Dave Shive, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> because I don't remember what I preached. Right. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Did you actually have an, an answer to that question in your sermon? Or uh, uh, I think I did. Did you just say, listen to the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, we did call attention to the podcast this week. I yeah. said you'd be here. We would likely, that's sort of a Johnny on the spot decision that, yeah, this is a topic uh-huh. that needs more uh, discussion uh, because I think we could go really deep on this. Because naturally you see, wow, slaves be obedient to your masters. And you saw Roots, I'm assuming, Dave, mm-hmm. at some oh, point. Yeah. I think most of us have seen that. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of a classic epic. Uh, Alex that Haley's work. It came out work. before you were born, didn't it? I think it did, yeah. yeah. I've seen mm-hmm. it. I think I actually saw it in high school mm-hmm. uh, in a history class is where I first saw it. And then I've watched it once or twice since. And read a few things on the Civil War and what slavery was like. And it's such an upsetting fact. I think we would all mm-hmm. agree it's a perhaps one of the greatest blights on our country's history, if not world mm-hmm. history. And uh, I did, Dave, I uh, had a quote, I'll paraphrase it now, it's not in front of me, by Wayne Grudem, who said, there are some overlapping qualities of slavery in the first century Roman Empire to our own country's uh, institution of slavery, but there were a lot of differences too. Mm-hmm. I guess what's similar is that the people weren't considered, I guess, legal persons or whatever the proper mm-hmm. term is. They were technically owned and property. You're talking about in the first century? Exactly. Oh, okay. But many people um, you know, served in, in what we would consider noble capacities. Mm-hmm. Lawyers were actually slaves. Uh, musicians in some cases. Mm-hmm. Doctors in some cases. Some people chose slavery because mm-hmm. it was a better option for them sure. than what they could find out there. So that obviously is a pretty pointed difference. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really match our own country's yeah. history of slavery. So Grudem had some definition, something like a semi-permanent employee with little or no legal and economic freedom. Mm -hmm. I sort of asked the congregation, do any of you feel like this now at your current jobs? Mm -hmm. And there were a few chuckles (laughs) here and there. Uh, That's how I approach it. Didn't deal with it in depth, Dave, and Mm -hmm. sort of got into the general principle of how we deal with difficult bosses in a 21st Mm -hmm. century context. So curious to get your thoughts. Well, I think uh, one of the things that is important to remember is that um, slavery was far more widespread in the first century. It's been estimated that uh, there were 10 million slaves in the Roman Empire of the first century. Wow. uh, Which means somewhere between 15-20% of the population was made up of slaves. Mm. And, uh, And so that's a high, high percentage. Which, and therefore, uh, the whole slave enterprise is really, really becomes a cornerstone of the entire empire. If you freed all 10 million slaves, what would happen to the Roman Empire? You wow. Know? And not that I'm advocating not freeing them. I'm just simply saying it was, um, it was a pretty big thing. The peasants uh, of the first century had it far worse, and there mm. were many more of them, because the peasants had no hope of income, whereas... Uh, slaves in the first century, as you said, had certain um, possible rights and hopes, and they were paid, and they, their families could stay intact and all that kind of thing. So that's, a, to me, a significant difference from the slavery that we experience in our early history. Yeah, and it's interesting, Dave, that some slaves chose it, right. which yeah. is almost unthinkable yeah. the way 
we think of slavery sure. in our own yeah. country, yeah. that anybody would choose such yeah. a, a well, meager existence. Yeah, and, and some of it was because they were taken captive. They didn't have a choice. They were taken captive and made a slave. In other cases, they were poverty-stricken, and they offered themselves because this was a better option yeah. than being a poor starving peasant i'll be a slave in somebody's household at least my family can eat and we'll have a roof over our head yeah that kind of thing um if you could um greg or dave either one just elaborate a little bit on um the old testament and deal with that and how god um talks to the nation of israel when they go into the land and take slaves um because we really can't get around that um and and that god um you know kind of instructed them on how to deal with slaves and how to handle that i mean you know these are his people the early stages of their relationship with him couldn't he just have simply said yeah you're not going to take slaves i'm not going to do that i'm not going to be about that but he didn't he chose to give them instructions on how to handle dealing with slaves and how to handle slavery essentially so if you guys could just comment on that um, a little bit. I would, but that question is too hard. So, <laughs> and besides, you, it's in the Old Testament, and you've never read the yeah. Old Testament. <laughs> I think I read it once. I remember it was like all these hard names and places, and I just thought, do we really need... No, that's another story for another yeah. time. I uh, yeah, Great question, Nathan, and I'm very curious to hear what Old Testament scholar David <laughs> Allen Shive has to say about that. Well, I think we have to distinguish between the term slave and the term servant. Yeah. And I think the Old Testament concept of what Israel was to do was more on the servant level than on the slavery level. Uh, I'm not saying that to whitewash it or to make it more sterile and therefore safe and good, but uh, the reality is that this, w in many cases, was a kindness. The slaves... Uh, that it, or the servants that Israel had would have a lot of rights and freedoms. Uh, they could become part of the nation of Israel as well, and, and you know they could actually join in on the feasts and the sacrifices by choosing to uh, circumcise their sons and the fathers and, and enter into covenant life. So I think there were lots of uh, opportunity then for uh, servants to engage in a meaningful way in the life of Israel uh, and not so much as slaves. So this would almost be an initial, um, an initiation into the nation. Right, sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's uh, very interesting, Dave, because that I, when I was a young believer, we sang that song a lot in Campus Crusade, the, uh, I don't remember it exactly, it was something Kumbaya. like... Kumbaya? Yeah. <laughs> I think it was, he has shown the old person... <laughs> Oh, that's another podcast with the radical gender-neutral language of songs, and I'd love to get Dave's take on that. But we'll 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 get to that another time. The issue uh, that came up in this song when I was a young believer, I never understood it, and I was too afraid to ask anybody. But do you remember the song? I think it was like "Pierce My Ear." Oh, well, no, uh, I yeah. never sang it, but I'm, I know what the passage is. Yes, yes, yeah. and it yeah. was a pierce my ear, O oh Lord, my uh -huh. God, yeah. take me to your post today. Like I, <laughs> I, I, and I, I remember singing it. People say, "Isn't that powerful?" I'm like, yeah. "It is so powerful." I have no idea what that means, <laughs> <laughs> and I just faked it, acted right. like I knew yeah. what it meant, and um, uh, exposited that for us, Dave. <laughs> well, that was the uh, provision that was made in the event that um, uh, the owner would offer his servant his freedom. And, uh, it, and in some cases, the servant would say, no, this is a good deal that I've got here. You're, you've treated me well, and I don't know what I would do if I went away. And so they voluntarily 
uh, submit themselves then to the servanthood or slavery to this master. And the sign of it would be you would put your earlobe against the doorpost, they'd drive an awl through it, make a mark on your ear. That was the sign that you had actually chosen uh, voluntarily to remain in servitude. Right. And I remember when I finally heard uh-huh. that, I was oh, okay, I get yeah. it. Yeah, this is what we're doing <laughs> right. with the Lord. Yeah. Just- and Psalm 40, uh, verse 6 or 8 says, uh, the psalmist says, my ears you have opened. Mm. And the word there is the same term, which is my ears you have pierced. Uh, perhaps meaning that you know I have volunteered to remain to be your servant, Lord. Is that why, uh, Dave? You have a triple piercing right, that I'm yeah, seeing in your yeah. ear. But it doesn't explain why I've got them in my nose right. <laughs> <laughs> or my navel. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> nose, navel. Let's stop right there. I'm afraid what the next anatomical specificity is going to be. Um, yeah, that is a a powerful concept uh-huh. of people voluntarily putting themselves under. And I shared that, Dave. I've quoted a few guys. Well, I don't think I quoted, um, uh, what was it, Alfred Ebersheim? Is that his name? The e- life of Edersheim. Times? Edersheim, who I, I was reading about some mm-hmm. you know slavery issues, that there were people that did not want to leave their masters, which, again, different concept right. than, we're, than mm-hmm. we're normally thinking about. But that did happen in our history in this country as well. That's true. That's true, because there were kind masters, not defending slavery, but there were masters of a more noble character. And to be released from slavery, um, sometimes my uh, my current situation, as bad as might be, is better than the unknown of where I'm going to go. And if you went out, who knows uh, what other people might grab hold of you because you're black or they knew you were a slave, they accuse you of escaping. So a lot just said, I'd just rather stay here. Yeah. And watch this million-dollar question, Nathan. You might have asked something, but I'm going to ask Dave this. I get asked this sometimes, Dave, and this is what I was really going after. Uh, and we'll probably talk about this for three or four more minutes. So let's see how far we can get. Why didn't the New Testament writers appeal for the abolition of slavery? Well, the, the answer I would give, and obviously this is a, a, merits a lengthy discussion, but the short answer would be that I think Paul's thinking is that uh, the the slaves would work from the inside out and by virtue of the redemption that Christ had worked in their lives. It's interesting in Colossians, Paul in 3, 1 to 17, gives 17 verses about what it means to walk with Christ and to live as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Then he follows that with uh, wives, husbands, uh, children, and fathers, mm-hmm. and then slaves and masters. And he talks more to the slaves and masters in terms almost twice as much verbiage about to, to the slaves and masters as to the other four categories. Interesting. Yeah, and it's, but it's in that same context. Yeah. And so the idea then is that Paul obviously would be uh, would not be reluctant to advocate abolition of slavery if it seemed to be that was the thing that was going to be a positive step forward for these believers. But they're in this situation, and it's it's woven into the fabric of the Roman Empire, and so uh, uh, the strategy then I think is that he's teaching them how to work within that system to be a follower of Christ. Mm-hmm. And of course, you got the Philemon Onesimus story as well, yeah. where uh, he urges um, Philemon just go ahead and release the guy, yeah. uh, but he doesn't command him to do it. But right. obviously, that was Paul's preference. And I would agree. I, people have pinned me down on that, uh-huh. and I've said I think that is what they would have wanted. But there also is that element of I keep calling it the bloom where you're planted principle. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know when Paul says in First Corinthians seven, uh-huh. 
were you a freedman when you yeah. were called? Were you yeah. the bond servant right. of the Lord? Exactly. Were you a bond servant? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you, he sort of levels the playing mm-hmm. field. Were you single? Don't get married. Exactly. Were you married? Don't get divorced. Yeah. Yeah. That there is this that they were not about political right. change, yeah. which running out of time here, but I sorry, know. Nathan, all these things are coming up. William Wilberforce. Yes. Great man. Uh-huh. Faith. Yeah. I, I uh-huh. read his biography. I saw the movie, which was okay. Uh-huh. Uh, well done. Uh, Amazing Grace. Uh, virtually single-handedly <laughs> ended slavery mm-hmm. in the British Empire mm-hmm. decades before we did here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Devout Christian man. John yeah. Newton was one of his spiritual mm-hmm. mentors. Um, I have asked people, why didn't Paul do that? Why didn't Peter mm-hmm. do that? Yeah. Wilberforce did. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's entirely different systems. Uh, was the Roman emperor inviting people to overthrow the social structures yes. or even giving them the freedom to it wasn't part of the fabric of the Roman Empire and the Caesars did not allow that yeah. and so but Wilberforce happened to live in a time when the government did permit that as we do today sure so it's hard to make a one for one comparison because the governmental systems under which we live are very different but I will say that it's important that we realize that overthrowing those those uh, evil systems is not necessarily the solution to the problem because that's the kingdom of this world. Yes. The challenge is, uh, is the kingdom of God coming in uh, to the lives of people, and that's a different issue. Yeah, and it seems that as people's hearts are changed and transformed by the gospel, they, I mean, individually, it's hard to picture a group of mm-hmm. Christians justifying slavery as a legitimate thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know for a while that was done, mm-hmm. but I like to think eventually <laughs> their consciences the Holy Spirit caught up with them. Mm-hmm. I know my wife went to Liberty University mm-hmm. in Falwell, who was the provost or founder mm-hmm. or whatever it was, for years was a big segregation mm-hmm. advocate and then later quite publicly repented mm-hmm. of that position that he yeah. once formerly mm-hmm. held. That I think as the, the gospel works its way into our ethics, our implications, it's hard to picture something like slavery or segregation sure. standing. Yeah, mm-hmm. We're uh, going to go ahead and uh, transition uh, from from this topic, although I think um, I think it's so important. I think we should try to revisit it at some point down the road, uh, Greg. So, you know, we'll um, we'll sit down and kind of plan that out because I do think we should. Um, And I think there's so much more. I I know yesterday while you and I were texting, there was so much more that we wanted to kind of explore and get into. And we just don't have the time right now. Sure, sure. Um, And part of that is because having Dave back on the show, we do want to um, continue in uh, what we were talking about with angels. Um, and so I'm taking what you're saying, Nathan, to expose Dave's heretical position <laughs> on that subject. Uh, Dave, this is an intervention, by the way. We're, we're going to bring in every guest we've had in just a moment to discuss your aberrant position on this. <laughs> Me and James Montgomery Boyce. Huh? Yes, yes. And Martin Luther. Yes, I, I will say I've been looking at this for the last several weeks. Uh, Genesis 6 is the uh, question or the passage in question, and we have the issue of who were the sons of God mm-hmm. that cohabitated with the daughters of men. Mm-hmm. And we, we uh, addressed that about a month ago on our prior podcast. You can look back at it in our archives. And we just touched on it a little bit. I do want to say Dave holds the position uh, that they were angels. Now, Dave, to your, uh, your credit, uh, my reading has suggested that uh, even ancient Jewish scholars and rabbis uh, believed that angels were indeed, or fallen angels, mm-hmm. however you would call it, the culprits of that passage, mm-hmm. 
for some time and that the Sethite view, which is my view, was introduced a little bit later uh, at, at, based upon my reading. And we'll explain that in a bit. But I want to say what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. Let's see who backs Dave Shive. Uh, you just mentioned James Montgomery Boyce. Um, he's dead, so we can't ask him any questions. <laughs> but he's in glory now, so he, he knows the answer and uh, knows that he was wrong. And there is uh, John MacArthur, who holds Dave's position uh, historically in the well, church. Well, I've Martin never Luther. agreed with John MacArthur very much, so maybe yeah. I should recant. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping, Dave. If I give enough people you disagree with, you'll back down from your position. Uh, but yeah, some very reputable scholars uh, that obviously hold this position. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a, there, there's room for such a debate. Yeah. Uh, I believe that those mentioned, the sons of God in Genesis 6, are the descendants of Seth. Obviously, we know the Cain and Abel story, that Cain uh, killed his brother Abel over jealousy, basically. And uh, as a result, there's a crisis here. We've got the death of, of this child. And Seth is given as the replacement child, the seed, to continue what I would call the godly line, borrowing that term from other scholars. And my position is basically that prior to the flood, which occurs, uh, uh, occurs in Genesis 6, you read about the divergence of these two lines, mm -hmm. the line of Cain, the ungodly line, and the line of Seth. The line of Cain, as I know you know this, Dave, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, is marked by what I would call worldly accomplishment. Uh, Tubal Cain, what did Tubal Cain invent? Remember, was he musical instruments yeah. or... Mm -hmm. They all have some yeah. sort of, uh, I obviously I don't have the text in yeah. front of me, which is really good preparation. <laughs> um, you know, some are uh, artisans and craftsmen, and, and they're marked by worldly accomplishment. The only notable comment made about the godly line is, at that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So you've got this emergence of two lines. You've got a godly line uh, marked by what I would consider to be humility, not worldly accomplishment, by calling on the Lord and an ungodly line, Cain's line, that is marked by worldly prestige, not calling on the Lord. So I take, in Genesis 6, the natural merging of the sons of God with the daughters of men to be a crisis in the history, well, in this period of primeval history, because you have the dissolution of the purity of the godly line. Uh, I shared that with you last time, David. I think you said something like the Greek word for that is... Uh, Poppycock? <laughs> Something of that line? So that, that's my general yeah. understanding of that. And Dave, your position. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I would expect from the novice who's uh, <laughs> who only reads paraphrases. Right, right, right. I got that from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Right. So. Uh, I was with you uh, all the way until you went into Genesis 6. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm in agreement on what was going on there. I would say that there's more said about the godly line than the last two verses of chapter 4. Okay. Because you got the whole chapter 5, which is their genealogy also. Sure. So in a sense, you've got the genealogy of Cain from 417 to 24, and then chapter 4, 25, and 26, all the way through chapter 5, you've got the the genealogy in the tree of, of uh, Seth. Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's obvious they are being juxtaposed, yeah. you know. And so nothing good happens really in the line of Cain. He's a murderer. He, he, he commits a homicide. He gets a divorce or, or um, bigamy is part of mm -hmm. that. You know, it's all bad stuff. Nothing bad in the line of Seth. Yeah. All right. And, uh, and so that's important, especially the idea that Seth 
is uh, the seed of 426. Yeah. God has now given me seed. Most of our versions translate that as a child or a descendant, which obscures the fact that Eve is thinking in place of Cain or Abel, she th- probably thought Cain was the seed that was going to crush the head of the serpent. Yes, Genesis here comes, 3.15. Yeah. Here comes this replacement, and the same term is used. God has now given me seed. Yeah. So that's her expectation. So you know we're together that far. Right. Um, and uh, am I waxing eloquent too long here? Or? No, this no, is good. Okay. Keep it going, Dave. All right. So so then you come to chapter six, and uh, there are four, five, six different views. And I think the the mo- the most credible way to look at it is to probably say there's some mix there mm-hmm. that we don't quite know for sure what it is. Uh, I think that there's probably tyrants present in Genesis six mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, and uh, I think that there is um, uh, some demonic activity, and so is it possible that in this uh, tyrannical line of of, uh, despots who are ruling the world and who are taking women for themselves because they like them, because they look beautiful. Sure. Is it possible that there's uh, that they are being energized in some way by demonic activity? Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's rather than just saying I hold to angels, I don't want sure. I, you know I don't want to narrow it that much. Mm-hmm. All right. And so then if it is uh, if there is de- demonic activity in some way, that's that really makes sense to me. But I wouldn't rest so. I think I can defend that fairly well from Genesis in light of other things that happen with angels and sexual activity, such as at Sodom and Gomorrah, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I really think the clincher is Jude, Book of Jude. Yeah, let's get to that. One thing I think that came up on the last podcast when Bill Heidel, one of our elders mm-hmm. who was here, he sort of asked the question that, sort of my natural uh-huh. question too, well, aren't angels sexless? or do, do, Aren't they incapable of sexual uh-huh. activity because of the passage in Matthew, is it? 22, mm-hmm. I think, about where Jesus right, says, yeah. uh, you will be like the angels, uh-huh. you won't marry or be given in right. marriage. And you said, no, uh, it doesn't say that. It mm-hmm. says they won't be given in marriage. Now, is it fair to assume the way uh, a Hebrew mind would have understood marriage, it would have included sexual intimacy, mm-hmm. so that by saying one, you're saying the other? You think I'm pressing that too much? Well, it, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I would say that uh, we can only go with what Jesus said for sure. Uh, we do know, I mean, I could ask the question, can angels, when they show up on earth, can they eat food? Uh, good question. I'm th- trying to think of the passage, the uh, the three, one of yeah, whom seems Genesis to be God 18. himself in Genesis. Yeah, you got angels eating food with Abraham True. Right there. True. All right, so at least we know that there are some bodily activities that angels can be engaged in. Interesting. I, yeah. I would say that uh, this is something I've noticed, Dave, and I've never known what to do with it. And I'm curious. I'll insert this now. Every time it appears to me, I'm more thinking New Testament, a demon appears in Scripture, what we would call a fallen, evil angel. That demon appears not as an independent entity, but possessing Exactly. Another mm-hmm. being, so yeah. that even the the the, the Gerasene demoniac, mm-hmm. uh, Legion, yeah. you know, they say, no, no, don't, they, they seem to not even be able to imagine an independent existence. Mm-hmm. They say, drive us into the, the right. pigs, yeah. even though they're, to the Jewish yeah. mind, they're unclean, filthy yeah. animals, and they all crash mm-hmm. over the cliff, etc. Yeah. Uh, and angels, what we would call good angels mm-hmm. that are, uh, sur- you know, uh, subservient to the Lord, they always appear, am I right, independently. They they never possess. Well, they they have form of some sort. That, right. And in some cases, in the gospel accounts, when they showed up 
at Jesus' tomb, uh, some accounts say there was a man there. Yes. Or a young man. Uh, yeah, yeah, a, yeah, a young man, yeah. white robe, that yeah. sort of thing. So is it possible, Dave, that I think Nathan and I have contemplated this. Yeah. Is it possible that when angels fell into sin and uh-huh. Satan's rebellion, which is a huge topic in itself, something about their natural ability to appear, to stand uh-huh. alone as an independent entity, changed. Uh-huh. I know it's all speculative. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it is possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't dispute that. Um, but it's obvious that they do want to occupy something, and it's interesting with the uh, the ones in Mark five that you're referring to, that Jesus sent into the pigs. Uh, Jesus, I think he asked them, where, sh- where do you want to go, and th- or something to that effect, and they said, don't send us to the abyss. To the abyss, yeah. And I take that to be a reference to what happened to the demons of Genesis 6, who, according to 2 Peter 2, 4, were locked up in Tartarus, yes. which is the Greek word for the netherworld. They're apparently still there and uh, waiting for their judgment because, according to Jude, in Second Peter, they left their own estate. Yes. And they crossed over some line, which I think was the Genesis 6 activity. And so those fall, there's two categories of fallen angels, and there's the demons that are free to roam about and harass, but there's also the fallen angels that have been locked up because they can't be trusted to be let go because of the sin they committed. Now, you would take those passages, Dave, to be the reference to Genesis 6. I would tend to take those as a reference to a prior rebellion with uh-huh. Satan himself, which again, I, I think you're hard-pressed to show in Scripture. I've always felt the fall of Satan is more of a deduction. Yeah. I think what people appeal to, right. is it Isaiah 14 and a passage uh, Eze- in Ezekiel? Ezekiel 28. Yeah. Right. And one is about the king of Tyre, one about the king of Babylon, right. I believe. Yeah. So I, I, I think you're always hard-pressed to prove it. When I My second to book prove, was on... To prove what? Well, the... The origin of the satanic oh, story, right? Sure. You know, I mean, I yeah. Dante gives us some cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you 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 get these things in movies and books, and I think uh-huh. the Bible is pretty uh, scant on it. But I would be inclined, assuming that there was some fall prior to Adam and Eve mm-hmm. being in the Garden of Eden, that those references in Second Peter and Jude are references to that cosmic level rebellion mm-hmm. prior to the creation yeah. of man. You take them to be yeah. references to Genesis six. Yeah. Because in um, in both passages, you have Noah mentioned, you, yep. have, you have Lot, you have Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned, and uh, and and so and you have sexual sin mentioned in, in those passages. And so I would say that uh, there's enough of a context there uh, to link Genesis six with Second Peter two and Jude. Jude uh, makes the point that. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah committed the same sin that the angels did, mm-hmm. that are mentioned in the previous verse, Jude yes. 6, 7, and 8. And so, um, well, what angels committed sexual sin? What, what were they talking about? Is it the angels at Sodom and Gomorrah? It looks like in the context these are not the angels that, that went to Sodom and Gomorrah and visited with Lot. It looks like other angels. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh man, shoot! He might get me to change my view, Nathan. <laughs> That's annoying. And and if you were to actually look at the Greek text, you you would you would understand what I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> Dave, doesn't that require actual Bible study, <laughs> like using the mind and examining Scripture? Yeah, right. Yeah. I tend to just like to believe everything I was ever taught yeah. and stick to. It. No, it. I mean, I would say it's interesting, Dave. I do have a natural. <laughs> I will admit my bias. 
uh, I think of Rosemary's Baby, you know, uh-huh, one of those horror sure. films yeah. where you have a Satan himself uh-huh. impregnating a yeah. woman. And I think of, oh, could that ever happen? Could that happen? And I think, no, for one. I know the, I think it's in Hebrews 1, angels are called spirits. Am I right? They're called ministering spirits mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sent to those to minister to those who will inherit mm-hmm. salvation. Yeah. So again, I think spirit, I think incorporeal being mm-hmm. yeah. as opposed to flesh and blood, mm-hmm. flesh and bone, human. So the idea of incorporeal beings engaged in sexual, physical relations mm-hmm. is just, maybe I will just admit it, I find it so disturbing and yeah, unthinkable sure. that I'm more inclined to wonder, in this hybrid view we discussed a little bit, uh, perhaps there's a possession of some sort uh-huh. of human yeah. beings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's <laughs> much yeah. more comfort yeah. for me to think <laughs> of that happening today, too. Yeah, But... It, but I would say, Dave, in your view, and this doesn't make it right or wrong, I'm just, I want to uh, track this, there were at least two falls. I'm assuming you think Satan obviously fell sometime yes. prior to, uh, to Adam and Eve being in the garden. Yes. And you would say there was another fall mm-hmm. at some point after yeah. that. Yeah, I would say that there are at least uh, three or four clues in Genesis 1 and 2 that evil is already present. Yes. One is the command in Genesis 1 to subdue, which is a word that means, that's pretty strong. It means to take captive. It's used of the Israelites taking people captive and really quashing and crushing. Okay. You know, so there's that. And then in chapter 2, Adam is told to do two things in verse 15, to cultivate, which is a really poor translation in that context, and it's the word that's typically used to worship. And so, and because my take on on uh, what's going on in Genesis one and two is that a temple is, has been created for Jesus to show His glory. Mm. There's an eternal temple in the heavens, according to uh, Hebrews eight, nine, and ten, where where God's glory was on display, and then. Uh, the earth was created to be a residence where Jesus could, could come and show his glory. All the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Yes. And it was to be populated with humans created in his image who uh, he could display his glory to. They could respond in worship. He could love them. They could love him in return. So that was the intent, I think, of creation ultimately. Yeah. Therefore, this is a temple. It's a, it's a universal temple designed for Jesus to dwell and be worshipped. And so they are told to worship, 2.15, and they are told to guard. The worship and guard uh, combination is used of the uh, priests in, in Leviticus to worship and guard, tend to the temple right. as well. So right. those are worship terms. Uh, and so, what are they guarding the garden? What are they guarding the garden from in two sixteen, two fifteen? Right, great point. And then you got the very next verse. There's the tree of good of knowledge of good and evil. Yes. Yeah. You know, so you got all these clues uh, that I think are part, uh, kind of buried in the creation account that suggest evil is already afoot, which makes me think that before Genesis one one, Satan had already fallen, and his objective then is to vandalize the shalom of God's creation. Yes, which I love. Uh, you mentioned planting his book, yeah. which I believe is called Not the Way It's Supposed right. to Be. Yeah. That, by the way, is a great read. Yeah. That's one of the best books on sin. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's called A Breviary of Sin. Yeah. And uh, Cornelius Plantinga, you know, a kid who was obviously teased on the playground because of his name <laughs> as a kid, yeah. but a great, great book. Mm-hmm. So just to, to, to stay on this another minute, Dave, and I'm not trying to just pin you down, but if, if your view is correct, that you may have had more than one angelic rebellion, uh-huh. could it happen again? Well, uh, I suspect that God has guarded against that in some way. The okay. angels that did it 
can't get loose. Right. They're I, still I, locked I, I up. Sure. Right. Okay. And so the assumption is that the angels that he has allowed to roam free that are fallen and unfallen in some way understand the price that would be paid because they don't want to go to the abyss. You know, gonna, okay. You know, so my, that interesting. That, yeah, that would be my thinking on that. So, in other words, the 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 Gerasene demoniac in Mark five is facing the Holy One. They know who he yes. is, which amazes me because Jesus created them. We right. could say theologically, yeah. mm-hmm. so they know exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. The disciples don't. The Pharisees right. don't, but they do. And your thought is, hey, I know of my companions that have been consigned now for a millennia to this abyss. Mm-hmm. I don't want to end up like right, that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. You uh-huh. ever hear that, Nathan? No. Um, Which probably but, means it's untrue. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am kidding on I, that. I, I do remember, Greg, when you were preaching this, your thought was they essentially ended up in the abyss anyway. I remember right. you saying yes. that you thought that... But once the pigs go over the yeah, cliff, yeah. where do they go? Yeah. When the pigs are dead, what, what do you have any yeah. thought on that? Day? No, no. I mean that's the that's the open ended question of the yes. passage. What happens next? Because it seems as right. if the, the you know Jesus gets yeah. the last yeah. laugh in that yeah. passage. It's such an amazing power right. encounter. Yeah, where it, I think too. Do you don't think there's something about the pigs being unclean animals to the Jewish mind that sure I don't yeah. know would would further yeah. cement the humiliation yeah. of these demonic entities that and, have been driven yeah. out. And what about these poor innocent pig farmers losing their whole I know. herd of sheep? <laughs> I know. How's that going to advance Jesus' message? Yes. <laughs> well, I heard uh, Steve Brown talk about this years ago, and he made an, an application of that passage I'd never heard of before, which I thought was telling. And he said, this is not the main point of this passage. <laughs> Don't go around preaching this is the main point, but it's worth noting in light of the animal rights activity today, which is very, you know, uh, very prominent. Um, he said, I, I don't want it to be lost that Jesus considered one image bearer made in the image of God, this poor man that was dominated by these strong demonic forces, mm-hmm. more precious than 2,000 mm-hmm. animals. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think that God is cruel to animals. Uh, I think even a passage like Jonah, you know, where the one of the last verses, one of the most b- bizarre verses, where there are, what, 120,000 that don't know their, you know, left hand from their right, right, right from wrong, and many cattle, um, <laughs> which is interesting that God seems to be showing compassion yeah. even to the animals <laughs> right, there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you don't muzzle the ox, right. that the Bible does not support, you know, Michael Vick style, sorry, Michael <laughs> Vick, I know you're listening, uh, animal cruelty. <laughs> But just so many fascinating things there. And Dave, you have, as you mentioned last time, a more, I would admit, being a reformed guy, uh, to my discredit, my second book you know, was on Satan. And I wrote that largely because I think a weakness in the reformed community mm-hmm. is almost an embarrassment. Nobody would admit this. I've sensed it. So it's my subjective impression. An embarrassment with the demonic. Mm-hmm. Um, reform theology mm-hmm. can do really well, yeah. really robust academic mm-hmm. without demons and exorcisms and possessions <laughs> getting in the way. Yeah. So you read some of these guys, mm-hmm. good writers. They almost, in my opinion, yeah. don't acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Give us your sense of the role of angelic activity today. Well, I, th- I think that uh, we totally underestimate it. Uh, and it's, a lot of that's our culture. Uh, are you familiar with the term excluded middle? Dave, you will not remember this, but you said, well, you mentioned on the last podcast, I'm going to get a little personal here. I uh, told Dave years ago, Nathan, that I don't know if something's wrong with me. I seem to be either extremely positive or extremely low. <laughs> and I don't 
think I have bipolar. I believe people do have bipolar. I don't think I have it. I'm not saying it's wrong if you have it. Some people do. Some people don't. Nathan, I've been talking about yeah. that. Should we? <laughs> so the intervention is really for right. me. Yes. Yeah. This Nathan is, has not been making eye contact with me. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed Nathan, you haven't made eye contact with me the whole night. That's I'm right. thinking now you're 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 going to bring it home. But I said, what do you think that is, Dave? And you said, I think you might have an excluded middle. Uh-huh. Do, I, do you remember saying that to me? No. Interesting. <laughs> what, on the last podcast or, no, no, or no. years ago? Like 1997 oh. <laughs> when I was first at Stillmeadow with you no. when was... you were my senior pastor. No. And Lisa and I have used that phrase often. She, There are times where she goes, oh, Dave Shy was so right about you. <laughs> You're excluded middle. So I would love to hear you apply this now to demons. <laughs> well, the the uh, it's a missions term. Okay. Uh, that was developed by a guy named Kraft, who said in the West, we view um, matters of spirituality in a very reasonable, logical kind of way. Yes. For instance, if you walk out into the forest and you stub your toe on a rock, you say, that was really dumb of me. I should pay more attention to where I'm walking. Yeah. If you're in a village in Papua New Guinea and you do that, you say, the gods are angry. Which, of course, we think is silly. Yeah, yeah. And they think our Western view is way too narrow. Sure. Because we're completely eliminating the possibility that that the gods and deities could actually be involved in us stubbing our toe on a rock. And so you've got these two extreme worldviews, the Eastern and the Western, in a sense. And one is very spiritual. Everything is deity. So you stub your toe on a rock. That means you've offended the gods. What are you going to do to appease them? You can put flowers around that rock. You've got to do something to make the gods happy again because they're really angry because obviously you stubbed your toe on the rock. And uh, and so his argument was that that's, that's a real problem in missions, number one, because th- there's a spiritual sense in other parts of the world about the spirit realm that we don't have here. And uh, and, and uh, But he says uh, it doesn't mean they're right doesn't mean we're wrong necessarily it means that there's an excluded middle mm. and the ex- it's in this excluded middle that you figure out a way to blend those two together because both have truth i would um i would look at um because greg i, I used your book when i taught and i think i mentioned that before on demons and mm-hmm. one of the things you know that i had talked with them about is i i think um this is going to sound funny but i think satan has the same concept of bloom where you're planted hmm. we don't he, he I, I don't think there's the need to go around and frighten and scare us here, you know, in, in the spiritualism because we have televisions, we have cell phones. And so we can very easily, I, and I think you've used this before, Greg, be lulled into complacency. Right. That our faith can just very easily be as affected by the television set and mm-hmm. the iPhone and the computer screen as it can by believing in all of the superstition. Um, and so I almost tend to wonder if there's a sense that Satan has to just bloom where he's planted that mm-hmm. I don't need to be yes. so active in terms of scaring people into believing in me because, hey, they can turn on the TV and get lost into a television show for 13 hours. You know, Netflix, right. binge watch right. Daredevil. Yeah. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm only on episode three. Where over in other countries, there there is that sense of... Uh, how, how do I wake? How do I get their attention? How yeah. do I get them to stop focusing on the glory of Christ mm-hmm. and focus, even focus on on me, Satan? Mm-hmm. You know, how how do I do that? Well, I can scare them. I can get them to turn to false gods and and all that stuff. Sure. Where in America, you know, we don't call mm-hmm. them false gods, yeah. but our television is our false mm-hmm. god. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I 
a great weakness in my pastoral development, and you both know this about me, is I have yet, at 44 years of age, been out of the country unless you count Niagara Falls, Canada. <laughs> Dave, would you say that's a really cross-cultural experience? Yes. To eat at an Italian restaurant <laughs> <laughs> on the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. Oh, my, my. I, yeah, we need to address that on another podcast. <laughs> I need to go. I need to get You've both been to different places. And I think you've mentioned this to me on one, say, uh, one side, Dave. I have friends that are OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian mm-hmm. Church Missionaries. I mean, these guys are as hardcore conservative as you get. I mean, you sometimes wonder, do, do you guys believe in the demonic? You know, everything mm-hmm. is, you yeah. know, jot and tittle. And, I, mm-hmm. and they were, I believe it was Indonesia. They were actually in a couple places where uh, the first night they were there, they were in their bed, and uh, the wife woke up terrified and, and quietly pointed at the end of the bed to her husband, and they both test. they told me this, that they saw a figure standing at the end of the bed mm. and they were terrified mm. and they held it up. They prayed, they closed their eyes. Yeah. They looked up sometime later. It was mm-hmm. gone yeah. the next day. These are OPC people. Mm-hmm. These are not uh, right. assemblies of God. Mm-hmm. What we would could call more Pentecostal charismatic mm-hmm. believers that might speak in these terms more, more regularly. And the next day at their training, the, um, the, the, the guy doing the training said, look, it may be, uh, some of our missionaries and people that have been have reported seeing a dark figure. Have you heard anything of it like this? Oh, sure, yeah. Wow, there's a lot of stories like that. Because I, I don't generally hear that mm-hmm. here, and when when you do, yeah. I'm just going to be. I sometimes wonder if the person's a little off or making it up. <laughs> yeah. Because as Nathan said, I I tend to think here there's less manifestation of that uh-huh. because there isn't a need. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, people. I mean, greed, as you said, Nathan. Yeah. It's a tremendous idol mm-hmm. for Satan to work with. It's a great yeah. medium for yeah. him. Uh, distraction, mm-hmm. uh, busyness. And yet it does happen. My brother, who in college got caught up in the in a drug culture, and he was using LSD a lot, and he had some heavy demonic activities. His cats recognized demons in the room, and they were going crazy. He looked in the mirror. He could see them. And so he came to live with us. Wow. And when he came, he couldn't sleep at night. He was paralyzed by fear. And he said uh, he felt the hand of something on his feet every night mm. in bed. And uh, he's not that kind of person. He's in the medical field. Sure. You know, so he's, he's a very rational, intelligent person. And it got to the point that he was just being ruined by this. So he asked uh, me and two friends to pr- fast and then pray over him, and we did. And he was delivered from that. But it was only through that prayer and fasting because he had tried everything. He was reading scripture and whatnot. And so, yes, it, it, and of course, that's through the drug culture yes. that that was opened the door for that. Well, here's a question I didn't think to ask of you. How do you feel about Christians doing exorcisms? Well, I think that it, you know, in the, you got the classical Catholic way of doing it, which sometimes skews our perspective. I'm not saying that's totally wrong. I'm just saying that it becomes a rite of the church kind of thing, and it gets formalized. I think the idea of casting out demons is very biblical. Hmm. I don't know. Do we have time for me to share one anecdote? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was on ordination council a number of years ago, with the, and the guy that was being ordained was going out as a missionary to Africa. And so this was a fairly conservative bunch, and I had the, uh, I asked the question of this guy. He says, are you prepared to deal with demon possession and demonic activity? And a Bible college prof sitting next to me said, that is an invalid question. We know from Matthew 10 that Jesus only gave 
the power to cast out demons to his original apostles. I've heard that. Yeah. And so, and then he and I ended up getting in this big debate right in the ordination council because I was so incensed that we thought we were going to send this guy to Africa telling him that demon possession was meaningless, there's nothing he can do about it, or that it doesn't even exist. Hmm. But that's really that excluded middle, and I think it's very prevalent in the West. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I Another anecdote with that that is from John MacArthur, who we've mentioned from time to time. In one of his books, he mentions a story where he and his elder team encountered a, a girl who was, mm-hmm. they believe, demonically possessed mm-hmm. and was speaking in all sorts of strange tones, etc., he said, now this is just his mm-hmm. story, they tried for hours to exercise this demon mm-hmm. and uh, commanded it, spoke to it. Finally, uh, they had the idea to start speaking to the woman herself mm-hmm. directly mm-hmm. as often as they could get her. They spoke to her, they shared the gospel with her, uh, asked her to consider the claims of Christ, uh, that the woman repented, received mm-hmm. Christ as Savior, and the, the episode subsided. Mm-hmm. So, of course, his take on that was we shouldn't have wasted our time with exorcism, mm-hmm. but in this new covenant era to proclaim the gospel, etc. Mm-hmm. Just curious. Yeah. yeah, well, that's that's nice and neat and tidy. I'm not sure that, yeah. that matches up with Scripture. You so, know? Dave, are you saying from time to time you'll disagree with a John MacArthur? Yeah, more often than not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be a podcast for a little time, too, Dave. I know, right? Yeah. It's... Maybe we can get Johnny Boy on here. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure he's looking That's for right. this venue. Yeah. To, I, I'm sure he listens every week. Absolutely. <laughs> he's one of the two. Yes, that's right. You know, interestingly enough, I will say a quick thing. John MacArthur, this was as of a few years ago, and our friend Jeff Kratz, who is, uh, he went to Masters and, and knew him personally. Uh, MacArthur or R.C. Sproul, neither of those dudes has ever been on the internet. Really? Can you believe that? Wow. Hmm. They have never once mm-hmm. been. They have huge internet ministries because mm-hmm. yeah. people around them said, hey, and they're like, sure, whatever, if that's a big mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and I would say that shows up in their theology. Yeah. <laughs> a non-downloadable theology. Um, I will say, Dave, uh, since we're telling – kind of an interesting podcast here. Each one has been a little bit different. I don't mind telling this in this context. We might have a smaller number of listeners. On Good Friday, I shared a story without the detail. But I have, 30 years as a believer, had two experiences – that I think were brushes with the demonic. One I won't share because it was it was I was much younger. One was several years ago when I was uh, must have been two thousand five. My son Benjamin was two, and I was um, very close to leaving my church, leaving Christ Fellowship. Just a very hard season. I saw no way that I was going to be able to remain here. There was a leadership crisis going on that obviously I won't go into detail with. It was very painful. Uh, for me, certainly, and I'm sure for other people involved. And I was on a website called findyourspot.com, which I don't even know exists anymore. But, you know, you type in all this biographical, demographical information about yourself, your education, your interests. And I was to be, ready for this, an English teacher in a high school in Peachtree City, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And it just sounded so pleasant. (laughs) It was an oasis. Mm. Well, it's finally done. Mm. I had some good years at Stillmeadow. I had a few years here. Um and I'm, I'm out. Mm. I mean, I, I was literally probably 12 hours away from starting to get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's incredible. That night, went to bed. I woke up uh, from a, a violently feverish dream. And in the dream, I was back at Parkville Elementary School, 
No, I have not been there. That school closed down in 1978 when I was eight years old. And I was um, in the hallway of the art wing, the third floor. And it's strange. The reason the dream stands out is normally my dreams aren't so concrete, but the smell of like the uh, pine saw and, and everything was so vivid in this dream. Mm -hmm. And coming out of the end of the hallway was a clown uh, that was kind of funny. And he was doing all these uh, weird juggling acts. And I was laughing in my dream. And it was very interesting. And I was uh, kind of intrigued. And then I looked down at my feet for some reason. And the floors felt kind of swimmy. And I thought, what, what is this? And when I looked up, the clown was about five feet away. And its entire countenance had changed. And it was dark. And it was sinister. And uh, I ran and ran and ran. And I was, I'd never been more terrified ever in my life. And I woke up violently lisa said well what's what's the matter what happened and i said oh i had a terrible dream and I, I felt nauseated i went to the bathroom to get sick and i uh finally kind of settled myself down I, I didn't want to keep lisa up so i went downstairs to the sofa and i laid on the sofa and um just kind of fell back asleep a couple of hours later it was still dark about five in the morning my little two-year-old boy starts screaming and uh was screaming violently loudly and i went up and i went in and and I checked on him, and I said, buddy, what's the matter? What's the matter? And Lisa came in, too. And he said, oh, the clown, the clown. <laughs> Only time I ever had really? it. Really? Wow. Dave. And I, I've, never, I've never known quite what to do with that. It's, and, and believe me, I mean, I, I share that reluctantly mm -hmm. because I am so tired of overly sensationalized stories yeah. where the, the gospel, the claims of the gospel mm -hmm. aren't enough. I, a couple of friends talked to me about that and wondered – was God showing me a glimpse that there's more going on here than your own personal frustration? Yeah. There's mm -hmm. more going on here than a career issue, a, mm -hmm. a pastoral issue. There's a spiritual warfare going mm -hmm. on yeah. that I, it, the people that I was in, it, embattled with weren't people. Mm -hmm. you know, like yeah. Paul says in right. Ephesians exactly. 6. Yeah. 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 I mean, Absolutely. Just yeah. Curious, is that your yeah. thought on oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so you took that as indication you shouldn't go to Peachtree That, I, that yeah. I shouldn't go yeah. and that I should uh -huh. stay. And uh, think how blessed you are, because you're right yeah, here in the studio yeah, right now. Yeah, and you're a clown. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have seen Poltergeist when I was a kid. And now, Nathan, they're remaking it, dude. Say, did you watch Stephen King's It before you went to bed yes, that night? Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, you're right. And clowns, like a lot of people, something about clowns are freaky deaky. And I never really yeah. had a fear of them Yeah. that I remember. I remember that movie Poltergeist as a yeah. kid. The clown has a this animated role and this almost demonic role and you're right Stephen King's it yeah. Pennywise is the clown can yeah. I just say that we have not yet even begun to talk about <laughs> angels are, and I have given up any hope that yes. that will ever happen so I'm hearing Dave a part three <laughs> well Nathan why don't you tell our audience about something else we're going to do with Dave in June yeah so in June um, we actually have uh, the whole month is going to be dedicated to some hot topics um, I'm not going to give all of them away for you but we are going to do a two-part series with Dave on Reformed theology because Dave um, is not Reformed in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in any way, shape, or reform. That's right. <laughs> is that like re-raptured? Yeah, right. That, exactly. exactly. Um, so we are actually going to dedicate a uh, two-part podcast uh, to having Dave come back and just discussing um, d discussing Reformed theology. Um, so, and then, like I said, we will have two other hot topic issues that we're going to discuss, but I don't want to give those away quite yet. So, 
So, Nathan, you're going to have the Hallelujah Chorus cued to play when I lead right. Dave to a robust that's right. submission to Calvinistic Reform Theology. The Dave, can chorus you believe that's going to happen in June? And, and there will be a spotlight that will come down on him, even though you won't be able to see it. No. Nathan, do you think, can God work through a non-reformed person? Is that something that he does? He might have done it once or twice in I, I guess so. It's, it's well, he did, like you know, he did through Paul. Right. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he did it through Jesus. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's where we're getting really yeah. going. In uh, fact, everybody in the Bible was not reformed. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be good. Man. It is. Uh, I will say, Nathan, my wife, Lisa, said, I was telling you guys this tonight, but our audience might like it. She goes, Greg, don't debate Dave. I said, what? Lisa, you don't think I'm right on anything I disagree with Dave on? She goes, you might be right. She goes, but Dave is just so much smarter than you. <laughs> You're going to sound so dumb. So, Dave, just, I like that, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> that's the encouragement I get. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be fun, Dave, because uh, it is something we've skirted at, and I look forward to talking about mm -hmm. it. We had talked, remember, in my, my last book, Killing Calvinism, mm -hmm. which was an admission that we who are Calvinists don't always do a great job, myself chief among sinners there, uh, representing it and um, sort of uh, connecting with others in the body of Christ from different persuasions. Uh, we had talked about potentially doing a book. So here's what I'm looking at, called like Calvinism in Conversation, where we sort of do a counterpoints book back and mm -hmm. forth. I view this podcast as maybe the rough draft oh. of that. I look forward oh, to it. Okay. I look forward. So, I mean, you think you're going to be able to handle my erudite explanation of Calvinism? Well, and... fortunately, I've got, what, almost a month to get ready? Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll pr remind me, Nathan, that day to look something up That's on the right. internet. That's right. <laughs> So I have a few. <laughs> a few we'll pull it up here online. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, sign off now. Um, it's been great conversation, guys. Dave, I promise we will get to Angels at some point. <laughs> yes. We will get to Mission right. at some point. Okay. Um, so we have uh, we still have plenty of time. So, uh, guys, we just rocked the Casbah. Consider it rocked. These go to 11.